Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Well, hey, church. I heard the story recently of two competitive fourth graders, Bobby and Raymond, who each wanted to play the part of Joseph in the church Christmas pageant. Well, Raymond ended up getting the part, and Bobby was pretty disappointed because he got stuck being the innkeeper. His jealousy got the best of him, and so Bobby decided to hatch a plan to get even with Raymond. On the day of the program, Mary and Joseph came walking across the stage, and they knocked on the door of the inn, and, and Bobby, the innkeeper, opened the door and asked gruffly, what do you want? Raymond, as Joseph replied, well, we, we'd like to have a room for the night. Uh, suddenly, Bobby, the innkeeper, went off script. He, he, he threw the door wide open and said, well, of course, come on in. You can have the best room in the house, the presidential suite. It's all yours. He thought this was his moment of glory. And for a second or two, little Raymond, as Joseph was caught off guard, but he was pretty quick on his feet, he looked over the innkeeper's shoulder into the room and said, ah, come on, Mary, no wife of mine's going to stay in a dump like this. Let's head to the barn. (laughs) You know, fact of the matter is, in most Christmas pageants, nobody fights over the role of Joseph. Because Joseph is not the star of the show. In fact, we never even hear Joseph say a word, the whole Christmas story. If we were going to nominate Joseph for an Oscar, it would be for best supporting actor. Because he doesn't play the lead here. In fact, we wouldn't nominate Joseph at all because the whole Christmas story, he's really just kind of in the background, taking care of the little things. You can imagine Joseph packing up the suitcase to head to Bethlehem going outside to warm up the donkey for Mary, doing the taxes, you know, getting the maps all ready for the trip to Egypt, working hard all day long in the wood shop to put food on the table so the Son of God doesn't starve to death, teaching the miniature Messiah the tools of the trade and, and the tricks of how to be a woodworker. All right, Jesus, come on over here. Now remember, measure twice, cut once. Yeah, you move your thumb. You don't want to lop it off with the saw there. It's not a glamorous job. He doesn't have a big role, I guess. No, no spotlights, no cameras, no headlines, no paparazzi. In the eyes of the world, Joseph is not all that impressive. But still, he plays a crucial part in the greatest drama of all of history. So it begs the question, why Joseph? Well, because a picture is worth a thousand words. Joseph, you remember, wasn't Jesus's biological father, but apparently when God the Father was looking for a stand-in dad for his son, he wasn't looking for a man of great talent or great eloquence or great learning. He was apparently looking for a great picture, for a role model, somebody who would set a good pattern for his son to follow because a picture is worth a thousand words. Now, we're in a series this month called The Clearer Vision of Christmas, and last week we saw the Christmas story from heaven's view, but but today we're going to see the Christmas story from Joseph's view. Look with me, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew writes this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law 
and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. All right, so, so, so here's the background of the story. Joseph and Mary are betrothed. Now, that means that most likely when they were kids, their marriage had been arranged. And then when they got old enough to marrying age, Joseph was maybe around 18. Mary was maybe 13 years old. They were betrothed. That means for a year, they functioned legally as husband and wife, but they didn't live together, didn't sleep together. And then after that year of betrothal, they would be officially married. Well, Keep in mind, the angel's already told Mary that she's pregnant, but Joseph doesn't know it yet. Mary leaves town to spend three months with her cousin Elizabeth, but by the time she gets back to Nazareth, it's painfully obvious now. She's starting to show. You can only imagine what that conversation would have been like. As Joseph sees the baby bump for the first time, Mary says, Joseph, we need to talk. And I mean, Joseph's just, he's floored. He's seen everything he needs to see. I mean, how, how, how could she? I, I thought she loved me. I, th- I thought she loved God. I mean, his, his mind is just swirling and Mary's going on and on about, I mean, there's no, something about no other man and an angel and the Holy Spirit. I mean, how, how dare she blame this on God? Adultery and blasphemy? He, he had to get away. He had to, had to go somewhere just, just to think for a bit. Now, Joseph was a good man. Matthew says in verse 19 that he was a just man. That means he knew God's law. He he knew that Deuteronomy chapter 22 says that if a betrothed woman did not save herself and stay pure for her groom on their wedding night, it was adultery and that she was to be stoned to death for her unfaithfulness. Guys, the Christmas story is not all warm and fuzzy. Last week we saw that the nativity is a battle and this week we see that the nativity is a scandal. Mary's life is at stake here. Joseph had every right to drag her to court to publicly expose her pregnancy, her infidelity. That means he could have kept his own reputation intact. He could have gotten back the bride price that he had already paid. But notice, it's not what Joseph does. Joseph doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't react too quickly. He doesn't get all heated. He was measured in his response. Verse 20, Matthew says, he considered this. He thought long and hard about what to do. Because the law required that he divorce Mary, but love required that he not expose her to more public shame than necessary because already, as it is, she was gonna be labeled an adulteress for the rest of her life. Already with a kid and no husband, it would be hard finding another husband to take her in. Once her parents were gone, there'd be nobody left to take care of her. So to avoid making this scandal any worse, verse 19 says that because Joseph was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Justice, but also mercy. He's just gonna serve her the papers with a couple witnesses present just to save her from the scorn of the town. And then 
After he decides what to do, you can imagine he's exhausted, he's heartbroken, he eventually falls asleep. But as Joseph sleeps, an angel comes to him in a dream and confirms Mary's story. The baby is from God. After all, Joseph wakes up. You can only imagine what he must be feeling. First thing, he goes to Mary and takes her as his wife right there. And not long after, they go on the trek from Nazareth up to Bethlehem for the census. Now, they're probably happy to leave Nazareth behind and all those small town rumors, the gossip. But oh man, that trip. 85 miles, Mary's great with child. You can imagine Joseph leading that donkey ever so gingerly up the rocky road. Finally, they arrive, they get settled in. Just then her water breaks and Joseph spends the next few hours running around fetching hot water and rags and and refreshing the hay behind her to prop up her back. And then, then, then he hears it for the first time, the cry of his adopted son. And, And little did Joseph know But what he had done in those weeks leading up to the birth of the Savior and what he would do in the years to come was paint a picture for Jesus and for us of what it means to follow God. Specifically, for our purposes today, I think Joseph paints two pictures for us. And the first one is this. Joseph paints a picture of obedience. A picture of obedience. The angel shows up to Joseph in a dream and says this, verses 20 and 21. He says, Joseph, son of David. Well, that's interesting. You might remember that God promised that the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. So the angel's basically saying here, hey, Joe, don't forget that you're from the line of David and God's gonna fulfill this promise now by having you adopt his son. Angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, in Hebrew, the name Jesus is Yeshua. It means the Lord is salvation. Now, notice what the angel didn't say. The angel did not say, his name is Jesus or I've named him Jesus or Mary's gonna name him Jesus. No, 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 the angel says, Joseph, you name him Jesus. That's huge. Because in Jewish culture, to name the child was to adopt the child. So now, as Joseph names Jesus, biologically, Jesus is the son of God through Mary. But legally, Jesus is the son of David through Joseph. In hearing the angel's message here, Joseph discovers the mission for this child to save the world from sin. And Joseph's new mission in life now becomes to prepare Jesus for that role. And so he does. We don't see Joseph ask any questions. He doesn't go to a counselor to talk about whether or not the dream was actually from God and what he should do about it. He doesn't wait a few days to think about it. No, 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 he just does it. He has ears to hear. God speaks. He trusts that God can and is doing something impossible. And then he lays it all on the line to obey. And and this obedience was probably embarrassing for him. He probably goes against the wishes of his family. He probably goes against the grain of his culture. He probably ruins his reputation. But he prioritizes God's honor above his own. And he obeys anyway. And, And surely this obedience would have been confusing too. I mean, if I'm Joseph, this just doesn't make any sense. Why would you do it like this, Lord? 
Why, why, why choose a carpenter to raise a king? Make me the father of your son. Why Nazareth as his hometown? There's got to be a better one. There's merchants with gold and governors with clout and Pharisees and rabbis who know the law in and out. Why me? This child is yours, not my flesh and bone. Why loan him to me? That's what I'd like to know. Sure, I'll act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with you. But God, is this really the best you can do? Did Joseph ever pray a prayer like that? I I don't know. Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But I bet you have. I, I bet that God has probably given you a call to obey that was inconvenient embarrassing or confusing and and if God hasn't given you that call yet just just wait he will (laughs) you'll be where Joseph was caught between what makes sense and what God is asking you to do and in that moment when he's calling you to obey you're gonna have questions we all have questions for God sure maybe you didn't ask your questions by a manger maybe it was beside a casket or staring at an empty bed or in the dark parked in an empty lot or in a hospital waiting room. We all have questions for God and we don't always get answers. But in the midst of the questions, the question for us is, will you obey? And and Joseph does. Joseph gives us a picture of obedience. He also gives us a picture of sacrifice. Joseph did not have to, but he chose to bear the shame of Mary and her son, though he'd done nothing wrong. Now understand that in the eyes of Nazareth, when Joseph took Mary as his wife, he's basically owning that this child was his. He's admitting it, that he's admitting basically in the eyes of the people around them that they'd been unfaithful, that they couldn't wait, that they'd screwed up. And for all we know, for the rest of their lives, the angel doesn't tell everybody else they're innocent. For the rest of their lives, when the folks in Nazareth flip through their yearbooks, they'd say, oh, there's Mary. Remember her? Who knew she had a dark side? <laughs> you remember? She, she said that baby was from God. At least she could have come up with a better story than that. Walking through the marketplace. Oh, there, there's Joseph. Have you heard about him? Man, what a shame. Who knows if that kid's even his? And, and, and Joseph and Mary didn't have to put up with that. The custom in Jewish weddings was for the bride and the groom to go into the wedding chamber on the wedding night to consummate their marriage. And then they would bring out the bloody cloth that had been placed under the bride as proof of her virginity. Now, now, now Mary and Joseph could have done that, but they didn't. Verse 25 says that Joseph did not sleep with Mary until after Jesus was born, while they're already married, because he wanted the lineage of the Messiah to be above reproach. For there to be absolutely no doubt that a virgin gave birth to this child, that Jesus was the God-man, that he was conceived only through the Holy Spirit. Listen, Joseph could have saved his own honor, but he prioritized God's honor instead. Joseph sacrificed his good name, forsaking the approval of his community, uprooting his family, moving his job, giving up his dreams for the perfect wedding, leaving behind his home multiple times to keep Jesus safe. Joseph had to sacrifice a lot for Jesus. And you will too. But Joseph's sacrifice led to God's salvation. And yours will too. God may call you to go to Bible college and your parents won't understand. 
But someday in heaven, there's gonna be people come up to you who tell stories about how they met Jesus through you. God may call you to go do mission work overseas and to sacrifice your financial cushion and your friends won't understand, but the kingdom will grow. And if you're dating, then that means that God is calling you to remain sexually pure. And that runs counter to the grain of our culture. The world's not gonna get it, but you're gonna paint an awesome picture of God's covenant love. And God may call you to lay down some of your hobbies or some of your family time to build a relationship with a neighbor so that they can see Jesus in you. God may call you to sacrifice some of your weekend to serve here at the church so that a child can hear that God loves them. God may ask you to lay down your preferences about what church is like and how the music sounds because it might help somebody else grow in their love for Jesus. God may call you to limit the number of activities that your kids are in so that you can have the time together as a family to instill God's word in them and to get them plugged into a D group here. Listen, if you are looking for a church that will cater to your preferences and bow to your convenience, then this is not the church for you. Because the call of God to Joseph and the call of God to us is not convenience, but sacrifice. I mean, can you imagine what would have happened if Joseph would have chosen to take the easy road? If he would have prioritized his reputation, his comfort, his career, his preference, his plan? Oh yeah, sure, he might've had a nice business and a storybook wedding and good social standing, but he would have missed out on Jesus. But instead, Joseph gives us and gave Jesus a picture of obedience and sacrifice. And, and yeah, we, we don't know exactly what Jesus's childhood was like, but we do know that Joseph's sons did see his example. In verse 19 in here in Matthew chapter one, Joseph is called a righteous man. Now the Greek word for righteous there is the word dikaios. Say that with me, you're getting your money's worth, dikaios. Good job, all right. So now you might remember, you might know this, that Mary and Joseph had some biological kids after Jesus. Jesus was the oldest, but he did have younger siblings. And one of those children was James, who wrote the book of James in our New Testament. Joseph was James's dad. James was the half-brother of Jesus. And James was also the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And James had a nickname in the early church. They called him James the Just. Now in the Greek, if you look up that word just, it's that same word. Dikaios, the same word they used to describe Joseph. In other words, James grew up to be just like his dad. He saw Joseph's example. I'm sure Jesus did too. Listen, God could have just told Jesus to be obedient. But instead, he gave Jesus a picture of obedience in Joseph. Four times here, Joseph receives a dream from God. And four times, Joseph gets up without saying a word and obeys God's instructions. And, and, and James surely saw that example from his dad too. What does James write in James chapter one, verse 22? He says, do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. Huh. I wonder where he'd seen that before. God could have just told Jesus to be compassionate, but instead he gave Jesus a picture of compassion. Joseph, you remember, could have had Mary stoned for her unfaithfulness, but Joseph's calloused carpenter hands never reached for the stones. He was a compassionate man, and I'm sure his sons saw that. James would write in his letter to teach the church to have compassion on the poor and the orphans and the widows. And in John chapter eight, when a woman is caught in adultery, by law, she deserved to die. But Jesus's calloused carpenter hands never reached for the stones. I wonder if maybe he thought of his dad 
and how he treated his mom. You see, in Joseph, we see both justice and mercy combined. And, and Joseph didn't live long enough to see the fruit of his obedience. To the best of our knowledge, he, he wasn't around during Jesus' ministry. He didn't see all of his questions answered, but we do. Because this story isn't about Joseph, is it? No, it's about that baby, Yeshua, whose name means the Lord is salvation. What a name. And everything that we see in Joseph, the obedience, the self-control, the humility, the balance of love and law, mercy and justice, righteousness and compassion is found not only in Joseph, but also to an infinitely greater degree in Joseph's adopted son. Because when Jesus' heavenly father put a call on his life, it was inconvenient and embarrassing and confusing. But like his parents, Jesus obeyed. Like his parents, Jesus was misunderstood and falsely accused. Like his parents, Jesus willingly bore the shame of another, even though he himself was innocent. Like Joseph, Jesus sacrificed, accomplishing both justice and mercy to fulfill on the cross the mission that his stepfather had named and trained him for, to save the world from sin. A picture is worth a thousand words. And so God chose this man of few words, Joseph, to be a picture, a role model for the son of God. And in the same way that God gave Joseph to Jesus, God is now giving you as a picture to someone. So who's looking at your picture? And what are they seeing? Character, you know, is, is caught more than it is taught. We know this, right? Your kids, your grandkids aren't gonna remember all that much of what you say, but man, they're gonna mimic exactly what you do. So what are you teaching them? In the year 1900, there was a sociological study published that was called Jukes Edwards, a study in education and heredity. And in this book, the author compared two fathers and two families. He compared the Jukes family and the Edwards family. On the one hand, he followed the family tree of Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards is probably the most renowned theologian that America has ever produced. He lived in the 1700s and helped bring awakening and revival to our continent. He eventually served as the president of Princeton. He was a godly man, a loving man, a family man. He and his wife had a remarkable marriage. He and his wife, Sarah, they had 11 children. And they were very intentional about passing on to their kids their love for God and, and a hard work ethic and the sense of responsibility and this study was published 150 years after Jonathan Edwards died. And it traced his 1,400 descendants since then. And among those 1,400, they found that there were more than 100 lawyers, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, 100 plus university professors, 62 doctors, a hundred clergymen, missionaries, and seminary professors, 60 published authors with millions of books sold, 75 army or navy officers, 80 elected public officials, including three mayors, three state governors, several members of Congress, three senators, one vice president, and one first lady of the United States. An incredible, godly legacy. And then the study traced another family. The lineage of a real man whom they called by the alias of Max Jukes. 
Uh, This person was a real individual who lived in New York during the same time period as Jonathan Edwards. And by all accounts, he was a really likable fellow. He was jolly, but he's a hard drinker and a, a vulgar talker. Had a lot of kids, a few of them illegitimate. He had no use for school or for hard work or for God. And and the children of Max Jukes saw that. 150 years after he died, the study traced his 1,200 descendants. And they found 310 professional paupers who abused the welfare system. 60 became thieves. 130 did time in prison. 128 prostitutes. Seven murderers. 400 plus alcoholics. 67 contracted syphilis, 300 died early in life. And of those 1,200, there were 20 who learned to trade. But 10 of those learned it in state prison. At that time, in 1900, it was estimated that the descendants of Max Jukes had cost the state of New York over one and a quarter million dollars. You are painting a picture that will outlast you. Character is caught. And you may not feel like you have an extraordinary part to play in the grand drama of life. But in your ordinary life, God has given you a monumental mission. Because a picture is worth a thousand words. So what kind of picture will you paint? Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have given us this picture in Joseph, a man of obedience and sacrifice. We ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would enable us to paint a good picture of obedience and sacrifice for those who will follow in our footsteps. We thank you so much for Jesus. God, you could have just told us how much you loved us, and you certainly did. You've given us a lot of good words, but you didn't just give words. You gave us a picture. You gave us your son. So that now every time we see the manger, every time we see the cross, every time we take these emblems again, the the, the bread and the juice, we see this picture of how great your love is. Thank you, Jesus. We need it. Use us, Lord, to show that picture to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.